Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is a show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about the personal side of climate change and other environmental issues. We focus on our personal emotions, our feelings, our private lives. Um, and today we're really happy to have a guest with us. Hello, I'm Charles Sigmundbode. I'm uh, an assistant professor in psychology at the University of Nottingham um, in the UK. And it's really nice to join you today on the podcast. And we're so happy to have Charles. Charles has been very active as a researcher, uh, really expanding our understanding of climate emotions around the world. And I know, Charles, you've been focused on your own family and your own your own life. Um, Pano, do you want to get us started today on our global conversation? And definitely, and warmly welcome, Charles, also. On, on my behalf, we have met online uh, talking about young people and climate anxiety, but it's really great to have a more relaxed and free-flowing opportunity for, for discussions. And there's also links. I'm from Finland, as many listeners know, and Charles has been leading really international research where one of the countries has been Finland. So uh, not me, but my, my colleagues have been involved in, in that. But, uh, I know, know Charles, a, a bit about your history that you've been in, in many, many places. So uh, would you like to get us started by telling a bit about your personal and professional journey? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Fanny. Um, so basically, my, my, my background didn't really begin in psychology. I um, did a degree in wildlife management because when I was younger, I got interested in conservation and I actually want to become a conservationist. So... Um, in the course of my degree, I went and did a whole bunch of um, sort of practical training things and different nature reserves and um, and um, national parks and things like that in Nigeria. And in the process of doing this experience gaining activities, I soon figured out that a lot of the issues were not to do with the actual sort of scientific or ecological aspects of the problem. A lot of the issues were to do with people. So it was, um, you know, conflicts between so park rangers and local communities. You know, a lot of it was sort of mistrust between the different parties involved, people not being very clear about what the purpose of conservation activities were and things like that. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm really interested in doing something around that, the human side. And incidentally, um, just towards the end of my undergrad degree, um, I just happened to stumble on um, a book um, titled Conservation Psychology, uh, which was written by Susan Clayton and Jim Myers. Uh, it was given to me as a present, so just random. Mm. <laughs> and I read this book and I thought, this is exactly what I want to be doing. So that was the sort of start of it. So I 
signed up to do a master's um, program um, in psychology um, and carried on sort of looking into things like pro-environmental behavior and things like that. And that's basically developed into this, uh, what I do now. Um, but the, the more more sort of recent history of what's brought me to sort of emotions and well-being and things, which has become quite a big focus of my work now, um, that kind of happened a few years ago, last three, four years, maybe three years. When we had our first child, uh, my wife had equal anxiety, clinical anxiety. We lived in Norway at the time. I mean, I was already working on climate change at this point, and I was doing work mainly around trying to encourage people to be more concerned about climate change, trying to get people more engaged. And um, uh, basically, my, my, my outlook at the time was very much focused on this sort of risk, risk perception models, trying to be like, you know, if people really understood mm-hmm. the risks posed by climate change, then they would be motivated to act. That was, you know, in summary, my driving you know, motivation. Mm-hmm. But then when I saw my wife go through this phase where, you know, she was consuming lots of information about climate change on social media, or I'm getting involved in loads of things. And she was just in a really sort of anxious state about this. And we had this little child. And, you know, I think it's a combination of that particular phase in our lives. Um, and also, you know, this big illumination thinking, oh, we just brought a child into this world. And, you know, there are all these things. And it was just really stressful. And that made me start to think a bit differently about what it means to be emotionally engaged with, um, you know, with climate change and the ecological crisis in general. And it was around this time as well that, you know, the Fridays for Future and, you know, the Extinction Rebellion, all that started to really take off. Um, and of course, climate anxiety as a concept kind of entered the public sort of mainstream consciousness. Um, so I would say I actually, I really value that point, that period in my life, because I think it made me move from a more, in hindsight, a mechanistic understanding of what emotions are in relation to the climate crisis to where I am now, where I like to think, well, one of the things I'm advocating at the minute is, um, how we need to have this ethic of care around how we communicate about climate change and try to motivate people and things like that. It's not enough to just be, well, let's just find a button that's going to make people engaged and act. We also have to think we've got to have some responsibility as well for this forces and this, this reactions that we're trying to generate um, with people. So that's, Sure. Yeah, thanks so much, Charles. That's very rich, and I really value this openness with which you are describing the, the, the journey. And this already connects to a huge number of issues we have been touching on this podcast. There's the so-called ecological identity or environmental identity, and very interesting to hear about this early history of yours. And I guess for many people it goes like this, that there's a place and an ecosystem and all yeah. that's, that's happening. And, and also the sort of par- paradigm that we need more information yes. that happened for, for me, me also. Yeah. And it was really eye-opening to then, then start looking it another way, way, way around yeah. and the works of Rene Leitchman and Ro Randall and some others very influential for me in that regard so so there's some points that I can also personally connect with here um, and actually to add to that someone else I mustn't forget here whose work was also very critical in that transition for me was Rene Leitchman mm-hmm. the first sort of outside of my social cognition paradigm where I am normally the first piece of work I read that took me kind of started to develop my of emotions was her book um 
Environmental Melancholia, mm-hmm. I think it was. Um, that was a really good book for me um, mm-hmm. to kind of get started in this new direction. This is great. Yeah, I'm really enjoying our conversation. And there are so many commonalities. Pano and I both have done outdoor work in the past and my, you know, my background doing outdoor therapy and uh, river, river guiding. And, and I also um, considered going into wildlife conservation and actually had a turning point where I was study environmental studies or psychology. <laughs> so I think that's a common, that's common for a lot of the therapists that I've worked with that, that they've had these, these backgrounds and just the listeners, I think the listeners can identify with all of this process that we're talking about, um, going from the intellectual to the emotional and psychologists in particular are very, very intellectual type species. And so, um, really moving to the, the emotional and the depth and more of the depth psychology and the more of the psychoanalytic, uh, archetypal directions like, like Renee and other, other thinkers. And yeah, the, the, um, insight of we need to take care of people, not just push levers and buttons in a behaviorist kind of way to get people to act, but there's this, this compassion for us all as, as I say, climate hostages, cause we're all kind of stuck in, in many ways in this area. Do we want to go into more of the international and what we're, seems like one of the many things you're doing, Charles, is really, um, illustrating that eco anxiety and feelings about even to step back and say people, everyone has feelings about nature and the environment and their connections and their identity. And you've been studying this in different countries outside of the, the countries that are often listed in the studies, the, the Finlands and the U S and the, uh, UK and, and, um, Canada. Would you want to talk a bit about what's you've been learning in your research the last few years? Yes, that's been a really interesting um, journey as well, um, and I think it it one of the reasons why kind of um, it's got it's got this resonance for me. I'm very driven to bring in you know the voices of the people we hear less about um, in this um, area, especially with emotions and things like that. So there are a couple of things that have kind of dovetailed in that work um, to make me feel really invested in it. So the first part is before I started to think about emotions in this way, I've always had this pet peeve about the concept of climate literacy. So there's been a lot of work out there where they rank people, also countries around the world talking about, you know, what proportion of the population understands what climate change is. So usually it's, you know, they're familiar with the term as a technical term. Do they understand it's caused by humans? Do they understand? So very much that's of the sort of techno scientific construct of climate change and it's like you know how many people around the world share that understanding and i've always found that to be quite problematic because when we look at places like africa when we look at parts of asia we look at you know um people don't necessarily have access to the language and that way to be it english or french or whatever that dominant language of science is but it doesn't mean that they don't have an understanding of climate change they interact with climate change on a daily basis they're affected by climate change their lives are shaped by climate change and to say these people are not aware or they're climate illiterate just feels very arrogant and it feels very, just feels, I found it quite problematic. And more importantly than that, the proposed solution was usually, oh, we need to educate people. We need to give them more information so they really understand, you know, what's the, 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 the scope of the issue is and things like that. And while I, I, I'm sure a lot of the motivations behind this are totally, completely benign, I just feel, we, you know, if we kind of thought about it a bit more critically, especially in Africa, I mean, I can mainly speak for Africa because I'm from Nigeria and I've, got, I've had that African experience. And I can say, you know, um, the English language, this sort of Western understanding of science, of 
approach to science came to us through colonization. So basically saying that you want to educate people to bring them up to speed with your Western understanding is essentially saying you want to reinforce those colonial processes. You, you know, they're the, the, the part and parcel of education is not neutral in that sense. So I feel the climate change community, research community, hasn't necessarily been that critical of, or adequately critical around that topic. Um, and then the way it connects with eco-anxiety work is also that in a lot of the work that's been done, again, in Africa, looking at, you know, the human side of climate change and how it's experienced, what the impacts are, the, the questions have been very basic. You know, the emphasis has been on particularly sort of agrarian communities and things like that. And, you know, how are these, are these people able to feed themselves? Are they, do they have access to water? You know, that kind of thing. And all that those are important questions. They are important questions. But the, the, the problem is the research never really progressed beyond that. It's almost like, you know, as long as they're alive, it's fine. Um, and none of the other things that are necessary to have a full, meaningful life, dignified life, ever seems to be considered. So that was why when the eco-anxiety work started to pick up as well, I thought, well, why are we not seeing anything really outside of you know, North America and Western Europe about this. It's again, it's that same thing about how you know it's really important here. We have all this you know complex emotions and all those things that are important, but other people happen around the world, we don't really bother to ask how they're feeling. So that 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 I, I thought that was something that needed to be sort of uh, set right. Um, so that's been a big motivation to um to to do the work that I've been involved in over the last sort of couple of years um trying to collect um data on this from all over the world but um it, and and that work has been really rewarding um because I then kind of connected to other people and it's become something even more than what I started out thinking about initially so initially it was just about look we need to get a sense of get a measure of how people feel about climate change it's not just about you know what they understand it's just how do they feel at whatever level of understanding they, 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 they are? Because I think emotions actually can tell us a lot about what people, beyond just asking someone, you know, how do you understand climate change? What does it mean to you, et cetera? I think we're, we're, we're quicker to be able to get a sense of how we feel about something before we're actually able to put it together cognitively to say, this is my attitude or this is my belief or whatever. We just, we just have that, you know, like intuition and things like that. And I thought, you know, this is such a good way to get to bypass the, the whole climate literacy thing and just focus on how people feel. Mm. Yes, so that, that's, that, that, that's kind of been a big part of it. And then what's kind of also developed um, out of it more recently that's become also quite exciting for me is, um, of course, we then had the project, invited loads of people, um, worked together, gathered all this data, but then it goes thinking about the way we actually do the research. So it's not just about the questions we're asking and what issues we're tackling, but it's also, how did we get here? You know, we, we started with a very small group with myself and a bunch of colleagues from mainly European countries who started up the project. Essentially, we came to it with an understanding of what climate anxiety was and invited people to help us figure out, to find out if that applied in a whole range of countries. We never really asked our collaborators, you know, what's it like from your side? You know, how do you think we should measure this? Does this even make sense to you? You know, so we've, we've, we've now more recently been spending a bit more time just kind of reflecting on the process and also thinking about how potentially this could 
not only inform what's happening around climate emotions research, but also become a template for psychological research on sustainability and climate change in general mm. to really, you know, properly embrace this global outlook on understanding this this idea that, yeah, one one way of seeing the world, one society, one group is not more important than another one. We we we, we have a collective problem and we, we need all, you know, perspectives, all hands on deck basically to make sense of it and navigate mm. our way out of it. Yeah, thanks for share, sharing all that and I think that's hugely important things related to the colonial history and how it links with climate science and giving emphasis on the lived experience of people often in the the complexity and also listening to other kinds of information than just the you know the rational cognitive put into words type of thing and sometimes folks in environmental education have also got very interesting results when they ask kids to make drawings for example and then people are very surprised that what actually comes comes out out of that and uh, have you gotten feedback for example from from nigeria or or the this context of yes so i'm i've um well that there's some work which where we've gathered all this data and we're going through it now so the project i was involved in which looks at people's understanding of climate change in east and west africa so the west african side of the project focuses on lagos in nigeria so it's, it's a coastal city it's the mm. biggest of economic center in the city and um it's got a very interesting sort of dynamic around climate change because the government is investing a lot of money in climate change adaptation because um, essentially the city is threatened by rise in sea levels and things like that. But in the process of delivering this climate adaptation project, there's also been a lot of forced evacuations of, sort of um, the traditional communities that lived on the coast. And they're essentially um, making this development that also double as luxury housing for rich mm-hmm. city residents, etc. So it's it's quite a complicated scenario there. So it's been really interesting to get all the data in from there, talking to people um, in Lagos about their feelings about climate change and what they understand climate change to be, what kinds of actions they're taking, etc. And we're just working our way through that data right now. Um, and then in East Africa, we also are working with communities in Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, so countries on the, what's it called, on the coast of um, Lake Victoria, mm-hmm. um, who so depend on the lake for fishing. And we're talking to them about their experiences of climate change as well and their feelings about it, um, how it impacts them, etc. And Basically, when we started this project, at its core, it's a natural sciences project. So we've got this sort of modelers um, who are doing all kinds of hydrological modeling in Lake Victoria to see what the scientific objective, you know, climate change trends are there, same as with Lagos as well. And then the idea of the project was to, for our social scientists to come in, so there's myself and um, Caroline Vanderbrek, who is also an environmental psychologist at Utrecht um, and um, colleagues in the University of Bergen as well. So a bunch of uh, psychologists anyway constitute the social science sort of side of the project. And we're supposed to come in basically and speak to people, get their impression of what's going on with climate change, and then essentially bring this data to the objective natural sciences data and see the degree to which there is agreement or not in what people think compared with the measurements that have been taken by the scientists. Um, but it's been um, a really good opportunity, as I said, yeah, to, to 
kind of get a feel for how people think about it. And uh, one of the interesting things actually I've been doing, which was uh, how that um, photo came about. <laughs> That's the slide where I misspelled your name, Panu. <laughs> Sorry. No worries. It was uh, basically me applying your taxonomy of climate emotions to the reports that we got from people in Nigeria to see how much of those emotions you identified in your paper are represented in the spontaneous accounts that people give. So all we've asked them is, how do you feel about climate change? That's it. There's no pre-question, there's nothing. It's just their spontaneous reactions. And um, it's been really interesting to see what kinds of things we will come up with. It's raised a lot of questions, actually, about um, not just the emotions that people feel, but also the language that's available to them to describe the emotions that they have. Um, so it's been really interesting. So people, a lot of people, the dominant emotion, strangely, seems to be indifference. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's been really interesting to try to delve into what that means, because normally when we think about indifference in the Western context, it's, you know, I, I think you described it actually in this, or categorizing amongst, you know, this of hostile emotions, it's a rejection, it's, you know, of, of whatever the issue is. Whereas in Nigeria, it seems to be something closer to resignation. Mm-hmm where it hasn't it's not coming from a place of not caring but it's coming from a place of either well there are just so many other things um so many other pressing concerns or this just seems to be beyond my ability to do anything so i'm just not i'm not even going to be worried about it because that takes too much energy you know mm -hmm. so that that's a big one and then in east africa the dominant feeling is sadness you know, when you ask people, they just say, oh, I'm really sad this is happening. I'm really sad about what the implications are going to be. I'm really sad because, you know, in future we'll have less food or our children will be, you know, negatively affected, etc. And again, it's a negative emotion, but it's not one that really speaks of activation or action, um, if you know what I mean. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting kind of looking through that data and um, the plan is to try to feed it back to some of the local organizations working in these areas and trying to think, well, how can we, you know, what, what, what do we do to kind of support people and make sure that, you know, these um, feelings get channeled into some kind of action that will be beneficial for, um, you know, sort of just resolving the, the issues, the, the challenges that people are facing. Because to be realistic, for a lot of these people, they genuinely do not have a lot of, uh, uh, means to have an impact, um, you know, in, in, so we're talking about people who are kind of disenfranchised as far as the political systems are concerned. They're, they're, you know, relative to someone like me or you, they're quite far away from the centers of power, if you know what I mean. They're, they're, they're not in a position to put pressure on leaders to do something, anything like that. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a very interesting scenario, but it's been really, um, really informative, really helpful to be able to learn about it and just bring that into, you know, my understanding and my colleagues' understanding of just the global landscape of, you know, climate change, um, uh, the, the human experience of climate change anyway. Uh, that's very interesting. Just some brief comments from me until I throw the ball to, ball to Thomas. Um, 
this issue of different words for emotions and feelings in different languages and cultures yeah. is something me and Thomas have been very interested about. And of course, the Finnish language plays a big role in that for me. And there's some things we have a word for uh, in uh, in affective uh, phenomena in Finnish that don't exist in English yeah. and, and the other way, way around. And what you are saying about indifference, for example, is highly interesting because I'm, I see many variations instantly sort of kind of calm acceptance yeah. it's not totally calm and it's dif- difficult to find a word but yeah. you know uh, if, if you just can't do anything about, about it then you you may have in a way engaged with it but then just made the estimation that you know it's totally beyond yeah. me. And th- that's something that I wonder if some language has a good word for that which would bring the connotation in- instantly yeah. but what's on your mind Thomas when listening to this very very rich conversation oh yeah I'm really You know what I reckon, and to bring the listeners in, particularly, I'm thinking of you, listeners in the in the U.S. Uh, you know, I, I've been looking at the map just to orient myself. And I do recommend people pull out a map uh, and just you know locate Lagos and uh, Lake Victoria, and just to get a sense of the part of the world near the equator that we're we're talking about. And you know, just the just the, such a different context with colonialism, as you say, and just the political situation and cultures in Africa. It makes sense once we look at this why the why the findings would be that you know the the sense of being able to take action you know is more prominent in you know European countries and U.S. countries you know wealthier countries. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, for for us and for the listeners thinking about our emotions. So this idea of indifference and sadness. Which I think people feel in the U.S. too. I think actually parts of the U.S. people are very much feel similarly. That's partly why the issues we have political issues in the U.S. People are very much disenfranchised. As a very, we have a very unequal country, and so when I think about this calm acceptance, I wonder: is it uh, to get more nuanced again about the feelings? Is it is it fatalism or is it also a kind of resilience? Right. So is it sort of like we will endure? Um, that's Just not having ever been to Africa, my sense of a lot of African cultures is there is a sense of resilience and the sense of endurance. Um, that's uh, this this even a sense of humor, you know, um, a sense of te- teaching stories and things like that. So I wonder about fatalism versus uh, resilience. Um, so that's one direction to go. And then just to, just to acknowledge, and Charles, you might have thoughts about this too. You know the. I feel like in the places like the U.S. and Finland, there is more of the more of the sense of guilt and shame uh, as someone privileged, whereas there's probably in Africa people feel guilty and shameful of their privilege, but the privilege is is more different, yeah, less evenly distributed through the countries. But I I don't think people in Africa are, are immune to shame and guilt either. So it just Staying a little more with all these nuanced feelings would be interesting. I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think those 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 emotions are certainly relevant in that context as well. And um, there was um, one person who explicitly used the term guilt, um, and they were talking about it in terms of. Um, I mean, presently, there's still a lot of um, people who don't quite realize that climate change is something that's driven by processes beyond their local context. So a lot of people would say, oh, it's because of the trees that were cut down you know, mm-hmm. somewhere down the road, or it's because of those factories or something. So 
there's that sense of local responsibility and there is some guilt around it. People, so most people wouldn't necessarily use the word guilt. There was that one person who did. But from the description of where they think these problems have come from, there is a sense of, oh, we're doing a disservice to our future generations and our kids and things like that. So that those, those emotions are perfectly relevant um, in that context. And that's part of the reason why I think this emphasis on the technical understanding of climate change and who has it and who doesn't is kind of mis mis it's it's the wrong direction to be looking at because um, the, the 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 people arrive at the same kinds of outcomes and have the same kinds of reactions and they make logical judgments. Um, and it's it's not so much the specific kinds of information that they're working with um, that really matter in that process, but it's how they come to make those judgments, how how those feelings come to arise, and what the consequences of those feelings are. Those are the sorts of things that I think are probably more important. Um, and so I think, to a large extent, the sorts of um, uh, uh, drives to make restitution or restoration and things like that, I think are present as well. And those are the sorts of things that I'm really hoping that the more we can generate this kind of information and get them in the hands of you know, active campaigners and educators in this context, then they can really begin to channel those drives um, into more constructive um, uh, um, channels because... Um, there's also a sense, there's also uh, the other thing I find a bit frustrating sometimes is um, I've really appreciated the emergence of um, a focus on subclimate justice, for example, or just basically justice framings of uh, the climate discourse. But I also see that within that, uh, our role as Africans or you know people in the global south in general is to be the self-victim of the problem. Um, and I think it's quite dis, dis, dis disempowering in a way. Um, and so I think we also need to not just, you know, while it's while we're recognizing and engaging the structural issues, we also need to not lose sight of supporting, you know, people's individual and collective agency to make change within those systems as well. Yeah, that sounds like a hugely important point, point that you are sharing and. Uh, I don't know how is this for you, because uh, you are known now in many places as an eco-anxiety researcher. That do do people come for you and ask them how how do how should we cope with eco eco anxiety? And, uh, and if, if 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 they did, what 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 would you say? I mean, what, they, your they do, take and I always refer them to people who I know are much more qualified than myself. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I I've I'm, I've been really lucky to um, for a while I was quite actively um, engaged with the. Um, Climate Psychology Alliance in the UK. Um, unfortunately, because of just work pressure and stuff going on, family life, I haven't really been able to keep involved as much as I would like. Um, but they've been brilliant. And usually I just say, get in touch with the CVA. They've mm-hmm. got everything. <laughs> you need to help. Yeah, there's lots of really great people there. Yeah. Yeah, it speaks to the, you know, it speaks. I mean, listeners should know that there's so many people working on all these issues all around the world, Charles. I mean, you, you've met people in every country you've been that are, are understanding climate change in their own way and working. And so people don't understand that piece. But then there is this, there is a lot, what I call it, you know, the climate elephant or the lineman and the elephant parable where everybody has different pieces of climate. And I feel for you, Charles, being the the uh, human feelings researcher in a room full of of climate adaptation people that are all focused on you know hydrology 
because it's still human feelings are 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 disenfranchised in the in the climate discourse. There's not an emotions, you know, the emotions are less less present in all the reports, and so there is this intellectual bias, and so that's tough. But then even among the people that care, there's a like, well, you who can help? Well, you can know, you can help, you know, and so yeah. the therapist and the therapists are trying to come in, but yeah. then they feel like they're they don't understand hydrology and they don't understand um, climate. So it is, it is a work in progress for all of us. So if people feel like an imposter or they don't know enough, that's just quite normal uh, for anyone engaging in this area. Yeah, we've got, uh, I think, you know, we have time for maybe one more, one more point. We can go a little over our time because it's such a rich, rich discussion. Well, how do we, how do we want to close off our discussion, Charles? Is there something else that you want to, you want to bring in that we didn't talk about or, Directions for the future. Yeah, well, well, well I, I mean, this is very much to do with what's been on my mind more recently. Um, but I think it's probably going. I'm going to stay with this for a while because I think there is a lot of um, value to working on this, and it ties into what you were saying just now about you know there. Suddenly, among psychology, there's a growing proportion of people who are really beginning to take emotions more seriously. I've really, I've been really glad um, since climate anxiety came around. You know, there are lots of ways we can critique the concept, and there are lots of you know um, issues with it. But it's done one thing, which is I think is really important, which is giving us this term to talk about emotions with that most people can relate to they just they know what you're talking about when you say climate anxiety they have some sense of it so we can now talk about that and what it means and also it's helped us move away from why are people not worried enough if only they were worried uh, then they maybe would see more action it's helped us move away from that more to a more nuanced understanding of emotions and that's really important and the other half of the equation that now needs to happen is how we then work together to really move this um, forward and you know, this is where it connects to what you were saying Thomas about you know, you've got a therapist you've got people like myself who are just sort of like you know research psychology researchers and things like that um, and I think sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the greater goal just because of the incentives within academia and how it works and things like that and it's almost like you know you're solving competition one another and things like that um but i think it's a really important sort of challenge for all of us um to be able to in whatever way whatever skills we've got and whatever you know capacities we've got to really to you know keep in focus that all of those different things complement one another um, you know, I've been in some meetings with other psychologists where there'll be some really searing critics of, I don't know, uh, more sort of like cognition-oriented psychology. And I've been in other meetings where people are like, oh, well, I don't understand this psychosocial stuff or this, you know, or what, you know, or it, it very quickly descends into this sort of disciplinary <laughs> tensions. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think we can really afford that <laughs> right now, I think. I think we, we need to maybe put in a bit more effort in getting the different disciplines within psychology to kind of speak with one another and figure out how to kind of work together to achieve the bigger um, sort of goals. You know, there's been a lot of work um, by people I really respect, you know, um, over the last few years, lots of commentaries, lots of opinion pieces, lots of things kind of trying to forge this vision for psychology around emotions research. And I, it, it would be great to see more work like that, more people coming together and trying to yeah, really push, really, you know, sort of drive that collective effort forward. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks once more for dwelling on that. And uh, as you sort of hinted before, uh, that also helps the researchers. And yeah. the, the, so that's my my experience both personally and with my colleagues. So that's the good side of it. And it's a, it's a advancing a paradigm change, I, I think. And yeah. I think you've been in many ways involved in, in this. And that's something for the listeners also. So no, no matter where, where you are, everybody can do something for yes. this great exactly, paradigm yeah. change. Great turning would be Joanna Macy's word for, word for it. And yeah. there would be other, uh, other terms. So just being open to these issues, that's yeah. already a great step. So, yeah. so not going into that, I, I can't take this. I want to stay away all the time yes, at exactly. least, but wanting to stay, stay with it. Right, and yeah. I'm very grateful, Charles, that you <laughs> found the time to come and discuss with you. I'm, Learned, learned a lot lot today and it's been a great pleasure thank you so much for inviting me it's really i do feel like i'm in the company of really great people because mm-hmm. i've read so much i've read your work i've I, I read uh thomas's work from very early on in my phd mm-hmm. so your papers with susan mm-hmm. uh, sort of laying out you know a lot of these things mm-hmm. <laughs> long before you know i was in a position to mm-hmm. actually do research on them and things like that so i really appreciate it. it's great to actually be talking to you in person and partner obviously you've done tons of stuff i can only aspire mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. you know do that so it's it's, it's really good so I, I i hope that we will you know be able to carry on this conversation in other spaces at some point in the future yeah me too and charles thanks for carrying the fire and moving it forward and Bring it to, to more worldwide attention. I mean, the idea of the ethic of care, I think, is a great takeaway. You know, responsibility for our emotions and also for holding other people's emotions, even if they're different, even if they're different. Underlying some of these uh, academic, you know, debates are people's different emotions too, and so like you know, really caring for different kinds of climate emotions than our own yeah. is a good for all of us. Um, well, thank you, and to the listeners, thanks for joining us again. Um, if you would like our content, please think about supporting our podcast. We're a self-funded volunteer effort. You can find us uh, at climatechangeandhappiness.com or our Patreon page. And otherwise, Panu and Charles, you have a good evening, and I'm going to get on with the rest of my rainy day here in Oregon. Have a nice day, Thomas. And you take care, Panu. Take care. Uh, take care, Charles and Thomas and all the listeners. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.